Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Who is Jesus? That's the most important question that you will ever ask yourself in this life. Who is Jesus? The way that you answer this question really determines the way that you answer every question. This one simple question has profound implications on the rest of your life. Who is Jesus? The way you answer it really determines the way that you live. It determines who you date, who you marry, how you spend your money, how you raise your kids, where you go to church, how you live not only this life, but also your eternal life. One question is more important than any other question, and here's what it is. Who is Jesus? Many people have asked that question, and they've come to different conclusions. Many people have argued, they have speculated, they've debated, they've talked about it, and they've all come to different conclusions. But one thing we all must agree on is that Jesus is the most important person who's ever lived. Whether you love him or hate him, you got to give me that. That more songs have been sung about him, more paintings have been painted of him, more books written regarding him. His entire life is the hinge of all of human history. That more people have placed their hope and trust and faith in him. They've looked towards him. That he has altered people's lives, people's legacies, people's destinies, and everyone's eternity hangs on how you answer this question, who is Jesus? And today, that question is more pressing than ever before. We may live in a post-Christian society, but everybody's still talking about Jesus. Everybody still wants to know who Jesus is. I mean, everyone from Justin Bieber to Kanye West, everyone at Washington, D.C., on Facebook or on Fox News, I mean, everyone's talking about Jesus, but they all have different opinions on who Jesus is. And we want to know the real Jesus. We want to know who Jesus actually is. And so we need to figure out, how are you going to answer this question, who is Jesus? Well, I would submit to you that there's five different places that you could go to learn to answer the question, who is Jesus? Okay, the first place you could go if you want to answer the question is, you could look at the Jesus of culture. When you turn on the TV, when you, you know, Go on YouTube when you, you know, surf the internet or get on Facebook, God forbid, you'll find a whole lot of different information about who Jesus is. So a couple of things. One, you'll see Jesus on shows like South Park. So you can see Jesus, he's doing battle with Satan, who also happens to be the gay lover of Saddam Hussein. You can learn about Jesus from the popular TV show Last Man Standing, where Tim Allen is a right-wing evangelical guy who raises his daughters while owns a camping store and shoots guns. You'll hear a lot about Jesus from there. You can also learn about Jesus from movies like The Da Vinci Code or Passion of the Christ, which for many of us was the only R-rated movie we were ever allowed to watch growing up. Or you can learn about Jesus from my personal favorite, Ancient Aliens. 
I love that show. Uh, next week, we're going to preach the Transfiguration. And so I was like, let's do some sermon prep. And there's an episode of Ancient Aliens about the Transfiguration where they say that Jesus is an extraterrestrial. I mean, come on. Like, if you want to know about Jesus, I'm not saying it's Jesus or aliens, but it's Jesus. Ancient aliens, you can learn about it from there. And there's a lot of different places you could go to be able to learn about, about Jesus. Everybody has an opinion. You could also learn about Jesus from places like politics. You ever notice that every politician quotes a scripture or says they believe in Jesus or, or says something to be able to get you to vote for them? They know that they're not going to be able to really say what they believe, so they have to pander to the middle crowd. They can't get it from one extreme to the other, and so they go for us in the middle, and they like to say that they're Christian. And so have you ever noticed this? I mean, let's just take President Trump. Okay. You know, we pray for our president. We support our president. That's who God has here, so we pray for him. President Trump, he says he's a Christian. He was raised Presbyterian. His favorite book of the Bible is 2 Corinthians, and he has a bunch of people around him to be able to give him wisdom. But at the same time, Hillary Clinton says she's also a Christian. She says that it was her strong faith backgrounds, her upbringing in the Methodist church that really gives the moral compass for the decisions that she makes. And then Joe Biden, he says, as he's a presidential candidate for 2020, that it's the Beatitudes that was the foundation for what he built his foreign policy on. Okay, All three people have three different opinions about who Jesus is. And you say, Pastor Byron, it sounds like you're being political. I'm not being political. All right, these are not political issues. These are Jesus issues that have political implications. All right, some people say Jesus was a Democrat. Some people say Jesus was a Republican. Some people say Jesus was a socialist. That's funny to me because I didn't even think he was American. But, you know, <laughs> everybody has an opinion about Jesus. And then you could also learn about Jesus from history. So what are some of the most famous people in history? What do they have to say about Jesus? I'll read you a couple of quotes because you asked. Thomas Jefferson, he writes, Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the son of God. The third president of the United States was saying, Jesus was just misunderstood. He didn't really mean to say he was God. The disciples and everybody else, they just, they took it way out of context. He didn't mean to say any of those things. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, he wrote what he calls the Jefferson Bible, where he sat down with the four gospels and a knife, and he cut out every healing, every miracle, and every declaration of Jesus being Lord. And then he said, aha, there we go. This is a Bible that I believe in. And the gospel of Mark was only one page, which would make this sermon a whole lot shorter. The other one is, what does Fidel Castro have to say about Jesus? He says, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of Jesus. Basically, Jesus was a good communist, just like me, killed millions of people. Malcolm X says, Christ was not a white man, Christ was a black man. Again, funny, because I thought he was Jewish, but whatever. Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist philosopher, he says, it's a shame that Christ died so soon. If he would have lived longer, he would have been a good atheist like me. And then Adolf Hitler, he writes, in boundless Christian love, because I know what you're thinking. When you think about love, Hitler's the first thing that comes to mind. In boundless Christian love, I identify with Jesus and his hatred for the Jews. Wow. That's the Jesus of history. If you notice... People have a lot of different opinions. People say a lot of different things. People come to a lot of different conclusions when it comes to the identity of Jesus. They answer the big question, who is Jesus, very differently. 
And if those things don't do it for you, well, then you could go to the Jesus of religion. Some people would say that all religions basically teach the same thing. Just be a good person, just try not to hurt other people, and follow the golden rule, and in the end, we're going to make it. And most people would say all religions basically teach the same thing. Not when it comes to Jesus. See, there's a difference in the way religions operate. So first, the universalists, what they'll say is that Jesus is a God among many gods. He's one way, but he's not the only way. You believe what you believe, we'll believe what we believe. There's no such thing as hell. Jesus is like a cosmic Mr. Rogers who just welcomes everybody into his heavenly neighborhood. That's, that's Jesus. That's what the universalists and the Unitarians believe. And then you have the Mormons. What Mormons believe is that Jesus is the half-brother of Satan, who is the son of Elohim, who, along with his heavenly mother, had spirit babies from the planet Kolob, who came down here to earth, and through his good works and good deeds, he ascended to a godlike status, where if you're like him, then you become your own Elohim of your own planet, just like Jesus. That's what the Mormons would teach. True or false? We don't believe that. Okay, if not, you need to go to membership. We do not believe that. The next one is, what do New Age people believe? New Age is becoming very popular. The occults and Wicca, what do they teach? What do they believe? Well, what they would say is that Christ is a part of a divine consciousness, that if we look deep down within ourselves, we can find the inner Christ. It's a bright light that we must listen to and follow, and if eventually we find it, then we tap into the divine. Next, moving on. What Islam would teach is that Jesus was a prophet, among other prophets, but he was a lesser prophet. He was not Muhammad, but he was a prophet, but he didn't get arrested, he didn't, he didn't die. He merely swooned on the cross, there was no resurrection, then he continued the rest of his life. If you go up to a, a Muslim and you say, you believe the same thing Christians believe, do you think they're gonna be happy about that? Probably not, because they have a different understanding of who Jesus is. I just want to show y'all, for those of you who think that all religions teach the same thing, that's actually very offensive against all religions. You think you're being tolerant and kind, but really, you're offending other people. All religions don't teach the same thing, especially when it comes to this understanding of, of Jesus. The, the Buddhists would say that he's a reincarnation of the Buddha. The Hindus would say he's one God among many gods. He's the reincarnation of Krishna. And then Scientologists what they would say is that Jesus is an implant upon a thetan that happened millions of years ago. You say, Pastor Byron, can you explain that? No, I can't. <laughs> I've done drugs, but apparently not enough, because <laughs> you have to ask Tom Cruise. He could help you, but I, I got nothing. All religions don't teach the same thing, especially when it comes to who is Jesus. I tell you all that because I want to I tell you this. <laughs> that there's a lot of opinions about Jesus, but we want to know who the real Jesus is. There's a lot of speculation and conjecture about Jesus, but we want to know who the real Jesus is. For 2,000 years, people have been arguing and debating. They have been criticizing. They've been ridiculing. They've been fighting. Some people love him. Some people hate him. But everybody knows who he is, but nobody actually knows who he is. We want to get to know the real Jesus. we got to answer this question, who is Jesus? And if you can't find the answer in culture, you won't find the answer in politics, you won't find the answer in history, you won't find the answer in religion, and so guess where you gotta go? 
You gotta go to the Bible because this is God's word. This is the only word. This word is trustworthy. This word is true. This word tells us exactly who God is, what God does, what God says, and what it means for us to live our life for him. That every single book in this book really points towards Jesus. From the table of constants to the maps in the back, it's telling us all about who Jesus is, why Jesus comes, what Jesus expects, and how we can live our life for him and how we can live a life that actually matters. All other words are words about God, but this is the word from God. All other words are speculation, but this word is God's revelation. If you want to know who Jesus is, you got to go to the Bible. And so we're going to turn to the book of Mark. We've been studying the book of Mark for about two years now, where we're calling it the simple gospel. We're just walking verse by verse, line by line, through the gospel of Mark, just looking at, answering the big question, who is Jesus and what does it mean for the rest of my life? And Mark is the simplest, shortest, the most concise story about Jesus. It's a biography telling the life of Jesus and the implications that it has for every single one of us. The whole purpose of Mark writing the book was to say, who is Jesus? And so today we're going to answer that big question. In order for us to answer that question, we got to answer a couple of other questions. We need to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? What does Jesus expect, and why does it matter for us? Some people say he was a good man. Some people say he was a teacher. Some people say he was a prophet. Some people say he was a leader or a spiritual guru or a healer or a magician. But Mark says he was so much more. The sermon title today is called Jesus the Christ. That he is more than just a good man, he is the God man, that Jesus is the Christ. If you have your Bible, we're in Mark chapter 8, in the very middle of this awesome book, and we're going to pick up in verse 27. We're going to read it all, and then we're going to ask the four questions on the back end. Starting in verse 27, and Jesus went on with disciples into the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others said Elijah, and others said one of the prophets. And he asked him, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. The sermon title is in the scripture, clever. And he strictly charged them not to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. And he said all of this plainly. And Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. Way to go, Peter, rebuking Jesus. But he turns, and seeing his disciples... Jesus rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him and to his disciples, he said to him, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man all also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. 
The key word to unpacking this really big text is actually found in Mark 8, 28 and 29. Jesus is walking with the disciples. It's been several years about Jesus teaching and healing ministries. And as they're going from Galilee, a primarily Jewish region, into Caesarea Philippi, a Gentile region, it's just him and the disciples out in the middle of nowhere along the way. And then Jesus turns and asks them this question, who do people say that I am? And then Peter says, well, people say a lot of different things. Some people say you're a good man, you're a good teacher. We don't really know. People say a lot of different things. And then Jesus, he asks him a different question. He says, who do you say that I am? That's a different question. And Peter, for the first time in all of written history, in all of the Gospel of Mark, in all that we know of through the scriptures, for the very first time, somebody actually finally gets it right when it comes to Jesus. Peter says, you are the Christ. He makes the confession. He gets it right. Two and a half years, preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons, drawing big crowds. Jesus has been serving and loving and helping and coming across every single person that he met and up until this point nobody understands who he is and then along the side of the road on the way to Caesarea Philippi Peter he makes the very first public confession you are the Christ Whenever I was a kid, I thought Christ was Jesus' last name. Like, I thought it was like Byron Ellis, Sally Smith, Tom Hanks, Brandon Stacy, Jesus Christ. Uh, but that's not how it is. Actually, um, Christ is a title. Okay, Jesus is his first name. It's an Old Testament name, Joshua or Yeshua, which is a derivative of that. And it means God saves. And then Christ is a title, which means the divinely appointed king. So the kings of the Old Testament and the nation of Israel, they would technically be termed the Christ because they're anointed by God. The word Christ means holy one, anointed one, the chosen one. That's, that's where Christ comes from. But over time, that name Christ, it began to evolve into what we would say today as the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. The nation of Israel, they have been in captivity for thousands of years. That the nation is in ruin, everything's in disrepair, that they have no home, they have no place, that there is no king for them, they're living under a wicked, godless ruler named Caesar, they're a part of the Roman government, they're submitted underneath Rome, and they are being persecuted, martyred, murdered because of their faith. They cannot yet worship or express themselves publicly nor fully, and there was this prophecy about one who would come to deliver them, one who would come that would save them, the looking forward to the Messiah, the chosen one, the holy one, the anointed one of God that was going to come back and set up the throne of the kingdom and the nation of Israel would finally take their place yet again as the dominant world power of the day. That was the Jewish understanding of the Christ or the Messiah. They thought that the Messiah was going to be a warrior. The Messiah was going to be a politician. The Messiah was going to be a king. He was going to be a theologian. The Messiah was going to come, and he was going to sack Rome, kill Caesar. He was going to cast them all out of the region. He was going to set up his earthly kingdom. He was going to be on his throne. He was going to rule and reign with a kingdom that never ended. This is the warrior Christ, the king, the savior. This is the Messiah. This is what they expect. And then they got Jesus. He didn't look anything like the Messiah they expected. 
right? I mean, just think about it. Instead of coming as a king, he came as a baby. Instead of being born in a manger, he was born in a, or being born in a palace, rather, he was born in a manger. That he was raised by a guy named Joe who swung a hammer. He was, he was raised with seven brothers and sisters. He's from a poor, rural, hick town out in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth. And then he comes on the scene, and instead of uniting all of the nation of Israel, he actually divides it. Instead of uniting the religious leaders, he divides the religious leaders. Instead of hurting others, he heals them. Instead of harming others, he helps them. Instead of, instead of cursing others, he begins to bless them. Instead of condemning sinners, he has meals with them, he befriends them, and he forgives them. Jesus doesn't look anything like the Messiah that they expected. The other day in our community group, we were having a conversation based on last week's sermon about how people didn't understand who Jesus is. Does anybody reading the Bible think, how dumb are these disciples? Like, can we, can we just be honest? You're reading, you're like, how do you not recognize that this is the Messiah? Like, how can you not tell he is the Christ? I mean, he's healing people. He's casting out demons. He hates religious people. He's feeding 5,000 people with a Lunchable. He water skis without a boat. How can you not believe that this guy is the Christ? I mean, how clueless can you be? You ever read it and you're like, how does this happen? It's because the way Jesus came was not the way that they expected the Christ was supposed to come. I mean, just think about it. Let's give the disciples, let's go easy on them. Because imagine you're a disciple. Let's just say you're at work one day, and then all of a sudden, this dude from Buna walks up. And he's like, hey, I'm God. Let's go. Are you going to do it? You're like, probably not. You're like, really? You think you're God? You have a mullet and a mustache. No way. You, I'm not following after you. But the disciples, they were like, all right, let's give it a shot. I mean, the least that could happen is going to be amazing. Let's just see what, let's see what happens. And so they laid everything down, and they began to follow after Jesus. Let's not be so hard on the disciples. I mean, they were praying for, longing for, looking for the coming of the Messiah. The problem is, is he didn't come in the way that they expected him to come. You know, for you and me, we have something the disciples didn't have. First of all, we have the Bible. The disciples, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have this because they were living this. We can read it and we can be like, oh, okay, that's what happened. They didn't know because they were in the middle of it. We have the resurrection. We can have an assurance of our faith because we believe that Jesus rose from the grave, that it's a real, true, historical, verifiable fact. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. Jesus rose from the grave. We believe that. The disciples didn't know that. Actually, today is the first time Jesus ever predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. Two and a half years, they didn't have a clue this was coming. And then we have the Holy Spirit. That you and me, if we're Christians, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, residing inside of your heart, leading you, guiding you, pointing you, correcting you, convicting you into truth and into righteousness. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the resurrection. They didn't have the Bible. The only thing they had was their human expectations of what the Messiah or the Christ was supposed to be. And Jesus did not meet those expectations. But he did exceed those expectations. You know, some of you, you have expectations of God, and he's not meeting those expectations, but I can tell you this. If it doesn't seem like he's meeting your expectations, it's because he's really exceeding anything you've expected. And so Jesus, walking along with the disciples, out in the middle of nowhere, along the side of the road, 
with no one else there, he turns and he asks them the most important question, who do you say that I am? We've been together for a while, who do you say that I am? You've been following me for a while, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question Jesus ever asked the disciples, and it's the most important question that Jesus will ever ask you. Who do you say that he is? This is the one question that changes everything. This is the one thing that changes everything. How you answer this question determines the way you live, not only this life, but also the life to come. The most important question ever asked, who is Jesus? In order to answer it, we got to answer four. The first one is this, who is Jesus? Starting in verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, you're Elijah and one of the prophets. And then he asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? That's a dangerous question. Amen? What are people saying about me? People talking about me? What do they say? Who do people say that I am? You know, we have this idea that Jesus, he was, you know, just this nomad who wandered around with his friends. You know, they didn't really have anything. They just went fishing sometimes, and he sat in a tree, drank decaf in the lotus position, and then 300 years, he got really famous, but nobody knew him before then because Jesus was just this, you know, just this renegade rebel. That's all he was. Yeah, that's actually not true. Jesus was very famous, During Jesus' earthly life and ministry, they would have crowds upwards of 25,000 people who would come to listen to him preach. Entire cities in the Gospel of Mark, we've already read, have flocked to come see Jesus. Everybody wants to know, what's Jesus going to do? Where is Jesus at? How is Jesus getting there? I mean, he just walks into a town, and everybody freaks out. I mean, it's like he's trending on Twitter. It's Bieber fever, Beatlemania. That's Jesus. Okay, he's gone viral. And then Jesus, his reputation is famous and infamous, and everybody knows about Jesus, but not everybody actually knows him. There is a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. Many of you, you know about Jesus, but do you actually know him? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter's like, people say a lot of things. I mean, some people say you're John the Baptist. It was a case of mistaken identity. You know, Herod accidentally killed you and did a little switcheroo with John the Baptist, and now you're John the Baptist, and so that's just the reason why everybody's Baptist today. That was a Baptist joke. I'm sorry. (laughs) Lord, forgive me. (laughs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) Moving on. Some people say you're Elijah. And he called down fire from heaven. We haven't seen that miracle yet, but it'd be nice if you could do that one. And then some people say, you're a prophet among many prophets, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it's been 400 years since the book of Malachi, so maybe, maybe it's just time for another prophet. That's all you are. You're just another person in a long line of people who are prophets. That's what people say. People say a lot of things about Jesus, and the same way in their day is the same way in our day is that people know about Jesus, but that doesn't actually mean that they know him. See, a politician can talk about him, but that doesn't mean that they know him. Big difference. A musician can write a song about him, but that doesn't actually mean that they know him. Right? A, a, person, can, a person can paint a picture of him, but that doesn't actually mean that they know him. 
that every person who scores a touchdown or hits a home run in the World Series, they'll make the sign of the cross and they'll point them to heaven in a celebration, but that doesn't actually mean that they know him. A preacher can preach a sermon, but that doesn't mean that he knows them, that you can listen to a sermon, but that doesn't actually mean that you know him. There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. Do you know him? See, people say a lot of things about Jesus, but that doesn't actually mean that they know him. Jesus gets straight to the point. He says, who do people say that I am? Well, some people say you're a good man. Some people say you're just a healer. You're just a magician. You're just a miracle worker. Maybe you're a prophet. Maybe you're a way among many ways. I don't know if you're actually God or not, but you know, I mean, it would be nice to follow you anyway. And maybe everything's going to work itself out in the end. You're just, you're just a really great guy, Jesus. I'm really sorry that it ended the way that it ended, but that's just the way that it is. But Jesus is not just God. That's what some people say. And Jesus says, I don't care what people say. I care about what you say. I don't care about public opinion. I care about your personal decision. I don't care what they say. I want to know what you say. I don't care what they think I am. I care what you think I am. Who do you say that I am? Peter has to make a decision. In this moment, what is he going to do? Is he going to confess that Jesus is the Christ, or is he going to bow according to the culture? The culture says one thing. Jesus says another thing. Who do you say that he is? That you have to make a choice. You have to make a decision. Will you bow to culture, or will you bow to Jesus and confess him to be your Christ? You must make a choice. Who do you say that he is? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Holy One, Chosen One, the Anointed One of God, the Appointed King? Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, come to ransom and rescue us from our sins? Do you believe that Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who created all things and by him to him for him through him all things are sustained together that he is the great dragon slayer who defeats satan sin hell death and the grave resurrects to the right hand of the father where he intercedes on our behalf and one day he's going to return to be our blessed hope take all of the saints up to heaven with him and come back and bring about a new redemption and new heavens and new earth and recreate everything the way that he always intended to be do you believe he is the king And can I tell you that if you don't believe he's the king, then he is nothing to you. Let's just get over this myth that you can be indifferent towards Jesus. Did any of those things, like I just said, sound optional? If he's the king, he's the king. And if he's not your king, then he is nothing to you. Let's just get over this myth that you can be indifferent towards Jesus. Love him or hate him, but you cannot be indifferent towards him. Right, because if Jesus is not the Christ, he is not just a good man. He's a damned man. He is a deplorable man. He's a disgusting man if he is not the Christ. Do you know why? How many nights have people stayed up on their knees crying and praying and begging and interceding to him? If he is a liar, 
then he needs to be damned. He is a terrible man. If he is not the Christ, he is not good. He is the biggest con artist in the history of the world. If he is not the Christ, he is not a good man. He is a wicked man. And many people have changed their entire lives and made decisions and altered their destinies and history based upon this confession that he is the Christ. And if he is not the Christ, well then, what's the point in it all? And so for those of you who would say, well, I think Jesus was good. That's ridiculous. Knock it off. That's not the way it works. You don't get to say that. Either he was the Christ or he was nothing. Either he's king or he's nothing. But let's just get over this idea that you can be indifferent towards Jesus because it can't happen. Who do you say that he is? You must make a decision. See, Jesus can ask the questions, but you have to make a decision. Who do you say that he is? And can I tell you this? It's not enough for somebody else to make the decision for you that you have to make that decision. It's not enough for your wife to make the decision for you. You have to make that decision. It's not enough for you to make the decision for your children. They have to make that decision for themselves. It's not enough for your coworker or your community group leader to make that decision. You have to make the decision. It's not enough for your faithful, believing grandmother who baptized you as a baby to make that decision for you. You must make that decision for yourself. I can't make it for you. I can ask the question, but you have to make the decision. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not what people say, but you. Not what the public says, but you. Not opinion, decision. Make your choice. Who is Jesus? Either he is the Christ or he is nothing. Which leads us to the next question. Why did Jesus come? Here's what we see picking up in verse 31. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, remember, this is not the Messiah that they expected. This is not the Christ that they expected. They wanted a warrior. They wanted a prophet. They wanted a priest. They wanted a king. They wanted a politician. And then instead, they got Jesus, who's going to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. They're like, you can't do this. This is not what we expected. Well, the story goes on. And he said this plainly. Oh, they understood this. Like, you read through Gospel of Mark, and you're like, a lot of Jesus' ministry happens in spite of the disciples, not because of them. I mean, it seems like over and over again, every story, the disciples just keep getting in Jesus' way. I mean, Peter, he's just like foot-in-mouth disease. That's what he has. It's just, he just says things without ever thinking about them. Some of y'all are in community group with that guy. See, now y'all laugh. (laughs) They get this one. They understand. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The one who just declared that Jesus was the Christ is now like, Jesus, we need to talk. And then Peter takes Jesus aside, and then he begins to rebuke him. Bold move, Peter. But turning aside to the disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. It's a rebukeathon, back and forth. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter goes from saying, Jesus, you're the Christ, to having Jesus say, Peter, you're Satan. You're like, whoa, big turn of events just happening there. How many of you didn't see that one coming? 
right? I mean, Peter, the leader of the disciples, rebuking Jesus. Like, you got to have a bold move happening right there in your life, Peter, because he brings him aside and says, Jesus, what are you doing? How do you mean you're going to die? You're going to be rejected. Oh, you're, you can't do those things. Suffer? Messiahs don't suffer. Jesus, you can't do those things. And then Jesus says, hey, Satan, get out of here, because you're, you're messing up what I'm trying to do here. Right? This is, this is different. You think, well, why, why did this happen? This is interesting. Because in one sense, Peter is right. He is the Christ. But in the other sense, he's wrong, because he's not the type of Christ that Peter expected. You can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. Did y'all know that? Okay, let me give you an example that happened just this week in the Ellis house. Um, the other day we were driving home and as we were going, my wife, she told me about this new baby monitor that she wanted for our daughter Ruth. Our daughter Ruth is gonna be born in just a couple of weeks and so y'all can please pray for us as we get ready to welcome in our new daughter. And um, she was telling me about this baby monitor that she really wanted but it was like $200. And I said, babe, we are not getting a new baby monitor. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. The one we have for Esther works perfectly fine. Not getting a new baby monitor, it ain't gonna happen. Not gonna happen. Okay, I was right. <laughs> but I was also wrong. <laughs> you can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. So me and Ashley, we made a, we made a compromise. We decided that we're just gonna get a new baby monitor, so. <laughs> Because you can be right and you can be wrong at the same time. See, Peter was right. Jesus is the Christ. But he was wrong based on the type of Christ that he was going to be. Do you know why he was wrong? Because he thought that Jesus was going to give him what he wanted when the truth is Jesus came to give him what he needed. See, Jesus doesn't come to give you what you want. Jesus comes to give you what you need. For Peter, it would have gone really good for Jesus to be the Messiah that he expected. I mean, just think about it. You're Peter. You are the right-hand man to the Messiah. It's going to go good for you. You are number one in the entourage of the king. It's going to go really good for you. Like, when they move into Solomon's palace, guess who's getting the poolside cabana? Peter, right? They may be poor right now, eating a bunch of fish, right? Just pulling coins out of fish's mouths and multiplying loaves, but just wait until he's the king. Oh, man, from then on out, it's going to be good, finger licking, eating good. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing because it's awesome being the right hand of the king. Just think, everyone's going to know his name. He's going to be prestigious. He's going to be powerful. I mean, he's going to be Peter. He's going to be the assistant, the, the water bottle holder for the king. It's going to be good because it's good to work with the king. I mean, that would have been great for Peter. I mean, he's really looking forward to this. And then Jesus says, yes, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be rejected, and the Son of Man must die. Peter's like, this is not the way that I expected this to go. This is not what I was anticipating. I thought you were going to be the Messiah. We were going to overthrow Rome. We were going to set up a kingdom. You were going to be the king. We were going to sit on thrones. I thought we were going to rule. I thought we were going to reign. I thought we were going to take charge. What do you mean you're going to die and you're going to suffer and you're going to be rejected and you're going to be hurt, 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 hated by all of the, the religious leaders and then you're going to resurrect from the grave? Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. This is not what I wanted. Jesus says, no, but it is what you need. 
See, Peter, he could not believe in a God who would suffer. And he made a Jesus in his own image. But we do the exact same thing. I mean, people say all the time, I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. Well, I can't believe in a God who would judge others. I can't believe in a God who would say all other religions are incorrect. Well, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Well, I can't believe in a God who would say homosexuality is a sin. I can't believe in a God who would say abortion is wicked. I can't believe in a God who would tell me what to do with my life. I want to tell God what I want to do and what he needs to do because I'm smarter and bigger and greater and more educated than God. We do the exact same thing. I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blanks. Can I tell you, it doesn't really matter what you believe about God because he's still going to be God. He's not up in heaven saying, oh no, they don't believe in me. I guess I'm not going to exist anymore. No, he's still going to be God whether you believe in him or not. Just think about it like this water bottle, okay? It's kind of like gravity, right? If I drop this water bottle, what do you think is going to happen? You say, but I don't believe in gravity. (laughs) Doesn't matter what you believe because it's still going to fall. Say, well, I can't believe in a God who would. Doesn't matter. Many times in our culture, we invent a God of our own imaginations. We say, well, I think God should do this, and I think God should be this way, and I think God should do these things, and I think God should act this way, and I think this is who God's supposed to be. No. He's either the king or he's nothing. See, you don't get to elect kings, he's the king. You might get to elect a president, but you don't get to elect a king. You might get to impeach a president. You can't impeach a king. He's the king. And what he says is what goes. And that's just the way that it is, because that's what it means for him to be the king. And then other people on the flip side, they'll say, well, I just think Jesus wants me to be happy. I think Jesus wants me to be rich. I think Jesus wants me to get married. I think Jesus wants me to leave my husband. I think Jesus wants me to sleep with my girlfriend. I think Jesus wants me to move in with my boyfriend. I think Jesus wants to give me whatever it is that I want. No, Jesus doesn't come to give you what you want. Jesus comes to give you what you need. And you say, well, well, isn't God love? Yes, he is love. And love doesn't allow you to ruin your life. Love doesn't allow you to make decisions that bring devastation to your eternal life. Love doesn't allow you to just run and do what you want, when you want, however you want. Love steps in the way and gives you a way out. Love looks like the cross. Love looks like Jesus entering into this world, living the life that you never could live, the life because of your sins, dying the death in your place, the death because of your sins, and then giving you a new life that you could never earn. And if you really want to know what love is, if you really want to know who God is, if you really want to know who Jesus is, all of that coalesces at the feet of the cross. He must suffer. He must die. And he must rise again. See, oftentimes we come to God 
based upon what we want. We say, I want sex, and I want power, and I want prestige, and I want glory, and I want glamour, and I want comfort, and I want convenience, and I want things to go my way, and I want to be successful, and I want to be happy, and I want all of these things, and this is what I want, and this is how I live, and this is what I... Jesus says, no. What you really need is grace and hope and mercy and redemption and salvation and forgiveness and peace. And listen to me, that only comes through me. The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must be betrayed. The Son of Man must die. And in three days, he would resurrect. Jesus comes to give you what you need. Why do you think he says, get behind me, Satan? Because the things that Peter was thinking on was the things of man, not on the things of God. So many times throughout the week of your life, all you're concerned about is the things of man. That's all you think about. That's all that you want. But the things of God are what you need. This week, as you're going about your week, try to think more on what you need and less about what you want. And then I begin, I believe that you'll begin to see a change in your life. The things of man are what you want. Jesus says, I have so much more for me for you than just a want. I have something greater for you because I am the only one who has what you truly need. And then I would submit to you this is that when your, when your needs are in alignment with his will, he has no problem giving you what you want because it's in alignment with his will. And if you're in his will, then your wants become your needs and he has everything you need. But Jesus doesn't come to bend to you. Jesus doesn't come to do what you tell him to do. Jesus doesn't come to just give you what you want. So much more than that. He wants to give you what you need. Which leads us to the third point. What does he expect? In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow after me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus says, okay, let's go ahead and just draw a big crowd here. Let's get everybody together. Let me make it really super simple for you to understand. Chop, chop. Bring everybody in. Okay, team huddle, team huddle, team huddle. Lean in, lean in. Y'all with me? Okay, lean in, lean in. If you want to become a Christian, here's what it means. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. If you want to be a Christian, you got to lose your life. And that's the only way you will save it. All across America today, pastors are going to give what they call an altar call. Do you know what an altar call is? Like at the end of the sermon where the pastor's like, if you want to become a Christian, bow your head, close your eyes, pray this prayer, raise your hand, repeat after me, come forward, yay, you're a Christian now. Do you know what that is? Have you seen those? Okay. This is Jesus' altar call. It's a lot different, isn't it? But if you just pray the prayer, you're going to heaven. You're going to make it. Jesus says, uh, pick up your cross and follow after me. You need to die. Whoa, that escalated quickly. <laughs> because 
many of us have been told, like, hey, if you just, if you just pray this prayer, you're going to get into heaven. Once saved, always saved. You're good. Yeah, but there's a little bit more to it than that. You say, yeah, you give your life to Jesus and you go to heaven, but there's this whole big gap in the middle. Do you know what we call that gap? It's called life. A lot of life happens in the meantime. And then Jesus says, during that time, here's what it means and what I expect for you to follow me. Don't just, don't just bow your head. Deny yourself. Jesus says, you need to deny yourself. You say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that I need to hate myself? That's not what he's saying. We live in a culture that's filled with self-love. Everybody's like, I love me, and I need, to, I need somebody to love me, and I want to love me, and I need to take care of me. I'm going to practice some self-care. And why doesn't anybody talk about me? Why doesn't anybody love me? It's all about me, 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 me. That's just the culture we live in. The Bible doesn't speak about self-love. The Bible assumes that you're going to love yourself. That's why Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. You already love yourself. Okay? And then he says, how about you go love some other people in addition to yourself? He doesn't say deny, he doesn't say hate yourself, he says deny yourself. So, so what does that mean? What he's saying is this, he's saying that if your life is all about you, then you may not actually know who he is. If everything in your life is all about you, what you want, when you want it, how you want it, you're going to do what you want to do. And if you don't feel like it, you're not going to do it. And that's just the way that it is because this is who I am. This is how I live. This is my life. And nobody can tell me what to do. That's fine. You're just probably not a Christian. He says, deny yourself. If there's no indicator of a life of self-denial, can I just say, you probably need to check your heart and see if you're still in the faith. Because if you are not living a constant pattern of self-denial, this is the mark of a Christian that you would come after him and deny yourself. Self-denial says, Jesus is not about me anymore. It's not about what I want, when I want it. It's all about you, that I'm going to bow to you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to follow you. It may not be easy. I may not know what I'm doing, but every single morning, I'm hitting my knees. I'm coming to you. God, could you just show me more? I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to be humble. I want to be submissive to you. I want to follow after you. I want to be with you. I want to come after you because my life is not mine. My life is all about you. Do you have a pattern of self-denial? If not, Jesus' words are very clear. If you want to come after me, deny yourself. And then the next thing he says is this. He says, don't just bow your head. Don't just pray a prayer. Instead, pick up your cross. There's a lot of people I'm worried about who have made a false assumption about their salvation because of a decision you made when you were six. You said, I prayed a prayer. Yeah, but are you carrying that cross? Or did you put that cross down 15 years ago? He says, he's going to carry a cross. Now, for the disciples, this would have been scandalous for them. I mean, just think about it. For these disciples... You can't even talk about a cross in public. The Roman emperor or the Roman historian Cicero, what he would say is this, that the cross was so shameful it was illegal to mention crucifixion in public. What Jesus is saying right here is technically illegal for them. The cross was the most painful, brutal death known in the history of mankind that they didn't have a word to describe it. So they invented a word called excruciating, which literally means from the cross. 
And the Jewish people in the region, as they would hear this, they would, they would know because 20 years before Jesus was born, there was a man they thought was the Messiah. His name was Judas of Galilee. He led an insurrection against Rome, and then Caesar killed him and had all of the men from Galilee crucified at eye level, some three to 5,000 men from Galilee to Jerusalem, basically saying, if you ever cross Rome, you get a cross. And then Jesus says, pick up your cross. So why would Jesus say that? Because he wants you to know the cost of discipleship. He wants you to know that following after him is not going to be a bed of roses and sunshine and Skittles the entire time, that there's going to be dark days and painful days and hard days. There's going to be days that you don't want to do it. There's going to be days that you want to give up and give in and walk away. And on those days, you need to know the weight of the cross because that's just what it means to follow after Jesus. But don't give up and don't give in and don't drop that cross and don't walk away. Some people, they prayed a prayer, but you got to be a one who carries your cross. See, but it's heavy. I know. That's why you shouldn't carry it alone. Get in a community group so that way you don't have to carry your cross by yourself. You can have 10 other people helping you carry that cross. But if you are a Christian, you will carry a cross. That's just the way that it is. We have way too many crossless Christians. Without a cross, there is no Christ. And no Christ, there is no Christian. Pick up your cross or walk away. Jesus is very clear on this. There's a lot of people who carry a cross for three months and they lay it down and walk away. You got baptized. You got out of the water, you got a cross. That's what you get. Some people, they're like, well, I didn't think it was going to be so hard. You didn't read your Bible. I didn't think it was going to be these things called temptation. Listen, before you were a Christian, you didn't have temptations. You know why? Because you were just a sinner who did whatever you want. Now you got the Holy Ghost. That's called temptation. Because he's saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You know why there's temptation? Because Satan hates you and he wants to take you out and he wants you to drop that cross. He said, don't just pray a prayer. Pick up your cross. Which leads to the next thing. He says this. He says, don't repeat after me. Instead, he wants you to follow after him. He says, don't repeat after me. You want to be a Christian? Follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, for us, we hear the word disciple and we think, oh, those are the really good Christians over there, right? They're the disciples. We're just normal Christians, just normal, ordinary Sunday Christians. Those are the disciples. I mean, man, they, they show up at the church at 5.30 in the morning and they have their prayer time and they go to the first Wednesday prayer night. They're in a community group. They serve one, sit one on Sundays. I heard they went to Next Steps twice. They have a special program just for them. And if you come and you can get one of those mystery books outside, all the disciples are going to pick up the book in the lobby. That's the real disciples. Us, we're just normal Christians. We're going to leave as soon as communion's over because that's just what it means to be a normal Christian. That's not how it works. You cannot be a Christian without being a disciple. They're the same thing. You know the word Christian only appears in the Bible 300 times? I mean, not 300, three times. Do you know how many times the word disciple shows up? Almost 300 times. Okay, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple, whether you like it or not. That's just the way that it is. Now, whether you're a good disciple, well, we want you to become one. 
He says, you will follow me. That's what it means to become a Christian, that you would follow after Jesus, that your life would be patterned after him, that you would be desperate for him, longing for him, coming to him, denying yourself, picking up your cross and saying, Jesus, I don't know where we're going, but I'm going to keep following after you. I don't know how we're going to get there, but I know you're going to make a way for me. And whatever comes my way, however difficult it gets, however things go, I'm just going to keep trusting you, keep holding on to you keep looking towards you, learning from you. I'm going to keep following after you. Do you follow Jesus? Seriously, honestly, do you follow after him? Because if you do not, then you deny the faith, you betray your savior, and you trivialize the cross. Mark is intense. This is serious. Like, Jesus, this is your altar call? No one's getting saved on this one. Jesus says, yeah, I know. Do you wonder why we don't do altar calls here at our church? Not that I think that there's anything inherently wrong or your salvation was not genuine because you got saved during an altar call, but do you know why we don't do it here? Because we expect you to pick up your cross and follow him. That's just the way we do it. We've got three words that'll change your life. We put them out. Just keep showing up. That's how you know you're a Christian. You just keep showing up, whether it's our church or another church, whatever you do, you just keep showing up. We don't want to trick you into thinking you're saved because you made one decision. We don't want to trick you into thinking that just because you were baptized, everything's going to be perfect afterwards. I've discovered that three months after baptism is when Satan shows up to try to take people and make them drop their cross the most. I was talking with one person this week, and I asked them, I said, hey, are you Christian? They said, I was baptized and made a confession of Christ when I was six. What happened after that? I don't know. I'm not God, but I'm looking at your life, and I would say, man, you need to make another decision. you got to figure out who Jesus is. This is what it means for us to be a Christian, that we deny ourselves, that we pick up our cross, and we follow him. Some of you are like, can we go back to the miracle stories again? I like the one where you spit in the guy's face. That one was fun. No, we can't go back. There is no going back. Do you know last week was the last miracle Jesus performs in Galilee to the Jewish people? No more miracles for them. It's over. Do you know that the week before was the last time Jesus offered salvation towards the Pharisees? There is no more grace for the Pharisees. Jesus is not going back to Galilee. He's making a, his beeline to the cross now. This is the dividing line for Mark, and this is the dividing line for your life. Who do you say that he is? There is no going back. Either he is the Christ or he is nothing in your life. You need to make a decision. There is no going back. The line has been drawn. The choice is yours. Who do you say that he is? Which leads us into our final point. You say, Byron, you're just trying to scare me. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to make you aware. Tired of playing games as a church, tired of half-hearted Christianity, trying to have decisionless disciples. And we've been sold a lie about what it means to really follow Jesus. We've been told, oh, you can just, you know, it's going to be okay. Oh, wait, that's not what we see in this book. This is from the red letters, the words of Jesus himself. If you want to know who Jesus is, why don't we... Why don't we ask him? What does Jesus say about the reason this all matters? 
He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Who loses life for my sake and the gospels, they will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes with the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do you know why this matters? Because your soul is at stake. Do you know why this matters? Because lives are at stake. Eternity is at stake. Destiny is at stake. Do you know why this matters? Because that this determines not only this life, but also the life to come. That there is another life. There is eternal life. And you will either spend it with him or from him. But you will make a choice. You will make a decision. Everyone is destined to die once and for all. And where you end up is based on the decision you make today. Who is is Jesus. Will you be ashamed of him in this life or will he be ashamed of you in the next? That's the options. Either you love him or you hate him. Either you're with him or against him. Either you're in or you're out. That's just the way that it is. And your soul is at stake. There is a decision and choice that you must make and you cannot wait. I have met so many people who have said, I will become a Christian when I am 30. I know my grandparents taught me. I know my mama prayed for me and I'm just not ready. When I'm 30, I'll give my life to Jesus. You said that four years ago. You're 34 years old make a choice your soul is at stake you get 80 years 80 years are you really willing to risk your eternity for 80 years if you take your vitamins and don't get hit by a bus you're not even guaranteed tomorrow and yet you're playing a game with God wagering your eternity on some stupid life that you want to live you don't even like your life anyway you're miserable we talked about it last week you don't even like the way that it's going why do you keep doing the same things expecting different results just lose your life and he'll give you everything else Why are you trying to hold on to something that's going to rob you of everything? Is it really worth it? Is it worth it for you to do the very things that you do and to live the very way that you live? Are you willing to risk every eternity and decision based on just one simple day and one thing? Are you willing to risk that? What do you get? Nothing. But if you lose it, Oh, man, you get everything. You get everything that you get to be with him. You get to have salvation. He knows your name. He has a place for you. He has grace for you. He has life for you. He has so much more for you. Why do you hold on to nothing when he has everything? He's the king after all. He's the king, and he's called you, and he wants you, and he loves you, and he wants to bring you in. He's saying, I have so much more for you. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the king. Come, follow me, and get it all. Do you know who I am? You have to make the choice. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What does he expect? And why does it matter? You know, people ask me, they say, Pastor Brian, why are you teaching Mark 
for two years. Because as a church, if we get this, if we get this, if we really understand this, we will be unstoppable. If we build a foundation of our church where we know who Jesus is, if we build a foundation of this church where every single person in this room is sold out and totally devoted to experience life change, if we build a foundation of theology and application in our hearts in this church, if you call redemption home and you live this life of sold out faith in Christ, if we get this, the city of Beaumont will never be the same again. Do you know why? because it was this confession made by the disciples that changed all of human history, that Jesus is the Christ. From this moment, Peter, he becomes the Peter who preaches on Pentecost. He becomes the Peter who writes books of the Bible. The book of Acts is all built on this moment and this day, and our church will be built on this moment and this day. Who do you say that Jesus is? He is the Christ. And in Matthew's parallel account, here's what Matthew says. Whenever Jesus says, Peter, based on this confession, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is built on the confession that Jesus is the Christ. If you want the church to grow, it's going to be a confession of the Christ. If you want your marriage to grow, it's going to be a confession of the Christ. If you want your health and your finances, if you want your children to know Jesus, it's all going to be built on the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And if you don't confess that Jesus is the Christ, there is no growth, there is no confession, there is no life change through Jesus. And if you want to see a revival, if you want to see a move of God, if you want to see him change you, if you want to see every man, woman, and child experiencing life change through Jesus, a gospel-centered movement, it's going to start with the gospel-centered people when they get down on their knees and make the confession, Jesus You are the Christ. That's why we're spending two years in the book of Mark. It took the disciples two years to get to this point. And for many of us, it's going to take us just as long. But here we are. You got to make a choice. Who do you say that he is? Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.